Cut the Crest presents The Screening Room So um, I've decided that I'm just going to do this little impromptu uh, episode. And what's prompted it has been a couple of things that I've seen in the media um, recently. Well, well, one thing in uh, in particular initially, um, which was, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but it was the Kanye West um, interview with uh, Joe Rogan on, on Rogan's podcast. Uh, I think this was about a week ago, I think. Um, well, a week, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was about a, about a week or so ago. I mean, I'm recording this on the 1st of November. So if you're, and I'm not quite sure when I'm going to put it out. So if you're listening to this, like, I don't know, sometime in 2021, then okay. It's pretty old news. But, uh, he, in that interview, and it's raised some interesting questions. Um, and I'm not going to go into what I think about Kanye West, uh, his presidential run, his, um, I don't know his, his his interesting. I can only call it interesting. Um, thought process, how his mind seems to process information or or not. Uh, it depends. Uh, depends. Because uh, he, he, you know, he much like myself. You know, there's a lot going on in his head, so I can kind of get that. You know, if you listen to that podcast, it's some two or three hours long. I think it's about three hours long. And he goes off on tangents and whatnot, and and I can really relate to that. I get it. Uh, but then some stuff he says is straight up batshit crazy. Other stuff less so. Um, and something that pulled me in was the his talk about. He so he mentioned Star Wars. Uh, of course he does. You know what what has Star Wars got to do with his uh, election campaign? Um, if I will, by the time this is out, this this podcast is out. Gosh, we'll know who will be running the United States slash the world. Um, probably still Russia. Oh, no. Okay, okay. Let's move on. So, and anyway, Kanye West talks about um, Star Wars. He talks about Lucas's Star Wars. And he talks about how a massive uh, organization, a uh, corporation like Disney, doesn't quite get it. It's like, like he's sort of, um, I guess he likens it to, you know, the corporate world creating uh, Star Wars by... Uh, by committee, I suppose, you know, it's, it's storytelling by committee. It's kind of designed in a way solely to generate revenue and whatnot. And whilst, yes, uh, Star Wars has kind of, it's ironically kind of become the one thing that uh, Lucas sort of fought against in early on in his career, right? I mean, he, he is the epitome of indie filmmaker and Star Wars, as people will often tell you, is the ultimate indie film, which... But in an ironic twist, became this massive studio thing and, you know, huge money-making machine. But anyway, so Kanye West talks about how that the, that Lucas is an artist. So that original six Star Wars films uh, is art, essentially. That's what he's saying. And what he's also saying is that what Disney, I suppose, have created is not art. Now, I personally... Um, I'm a little conflicted with the, the, the Disney stuff. I was very excited when uh, Lucasfilm uh, was sold to Disney. I thought this is great. You know, fi- you know they're going to really produce a lot of material and it's going to be wonderful because obviously you always equate Disney with quality uh, and those and perhaps those uh, less than good 
so straight to uh, TV films or whatever, you know, that you kind of tend to forget that stuff. It's easy to forget that that third Pirates of the Caribbean film and the subsequent ones as well. Although I don't think I saw the fourth or fifth one. I don't know, whichever. Uh, you know, are not actually that good at all. Um, production value is great. The, you know, not questioning the heart and soul and the effort that went into it. But the final product, nah, you know, it's, uh, I think, not even subjective. I think there's elements which are objectively quite bad but um you know and, and you can't expect anybody to get something right 100 percent of the time but with the disney star wars stuff now star wars as is the case for a lot of people my age uh, particularly and that would be you know sort of 40 something year old you know middle-aged blokes probably more so than the um the ferris x uh it's it's something that we cherish because because characters like Luke Skywalker uh, and Han Solo, uh, they were, um, you know, they were they were they were characters that kind of sculpted our ideology or our our outlook on life. Our, you know, the first ever time I ever dressed up, I remember, um, or actually, the second time. I think the first time I ever dressed up in any kind of fancy dress was as Mumra from Thundercats for my uh, little uh, cousin's first birthday party. I was dressed up in our red curtain we had one of those yes we had red curtains back in the early 80s or mid 80s um you know blue face paint and bog roll wrapped around me and then wrapped up in this red curtain to look like the uh mummified version of uh mumra but my next uh costume would be well essentially actually every indian boy from that era from the 70s and 80s seemed to have this uh, well I, I wouldn't be surprised um you know, every Indian boy had this really naff uh, velvet, you know, black crushed velvet uh, waistcoat and trousers. You know, it was like the birthday outfit, not naked. You know, we were born wearing these crushed velvet, god-awful velvet suits. Uh, and I had one of those. And, I, you know, my, my trousers, I think they had two gold lines going down the side. A little like how Han Solo has the, the red and blue, red and blue stripes down the side. Anyway... You know, so I, I basically wore that with a white shirt and some boots. And I, I carried like a toy gun around with me. And I went as Han Solo. And we're, we're talking, I must have been like six years old. You know, five, six years old or whatever. Uh, seven max. Okay, just don't tell anybody I was 21. No, um, you know, it, it one of the first things I did was uh, dress up as Han Solo. And the character, certainly the character of Luke Skywalker and other characters like Optimus Prime. And uh, funnily enough, just fictional characters from the 80s are what actually I derive a lot of my um uh what's the word I'm looking for uh they they sort of sculpted and molded my outlook that along with uh the only religious thing really that I carry with me one of the one of the ten commandments um you know uh do unto others as you would have others do unto you um and those kinds of philosophies that the, those characters, those fictional characters carried with them, they, they f basically formed my personality. They, they informed, well, informed it, not entirely formed it, of course. So I found it really interesting when West was talking about Lucas as the artist and his Star Wars versus the Disney Star Wars, which, you know, I didn't really get around to it. But what I was trying to get at earlier was that I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of quite frankly um there's some really really good stuff and even though i have these biases right you'd think that i that i would be a big fan 
Um, yes, my friends and family have been uh, instrumental to a degree in making these things. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to automatically like it. You know, in the same way that people will say things like blood is thicker than water. Well, no, not not necessarily. Um, because if that person that you're bonded to by blood is an utter, utter dick, then let, you know, let him go. Uh, you don't need that. Whereas some stranger who could be the kindest person in the universe, um, you would want to keep that person by your side, uh, you know, for as long as you can, for forever. You know, uh, th- yeah, I've never bought the whole blood is thicker than water um, BS in the same way that just because uh, my friends and family are involved in these new films and uh, uh, less so the shows, actually, but the films, at least, that I would necessarily just, uh, you know, turn around and say, oh, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. No, there's good stuff and there's bad stuff. Um, for me, unfortunately, with maybe about 50 to 60% of it, uh, the bad outweighs the good. Um, but that's fine, you know, who cares? Uh, okay, so it's not it's not for me. Uh, that That's the only outlook one can take. Kanye West, however, sort of decides to go off on this sort of, um, I don't know, Rogan calls them rants. I don't know if you can necessarily call them rants, but he goes off on these uh, uh, these tangents where he expresses his thoughts about these things. And he talks about the hero's journey. He talks about, does he talk about Luke Skywalker? I mean, he mentions the hero's journey, okay, specifically. So therefore, one would assume that he is talking about Luke Skywalker. Though he references... Uh, to save you a bit of time in case you don't want to listen to it, he talks about Revenge of the Sith, um, which apparently he's seen 10 times in lockdown, and yet he still gets the line wrong. He quotes uh, he quotes the Obi-Wan line at the at, um, towards the end of the film when he says, uh, it's over, Anakin, I have the high ground, you know, and then Anakin jumps over him and somehow gets chopped into a thousand pieces. I, I, well, a few pieces. Um, yeah, I don't know. Kanye West, he's seen the film 10 times, during lockdown over the past, you know, however many months it had been, and yet he gets a line wrong. Okay, and oh no, I love Revenge of the Sith. It's a great film. It's a great film. Um, I think you know, and if you don't think so, then fine. Uh, I don't really care to be honest. Uh, just as this is the same vein that you shouldn't give a shit whether I like something or not. But um, what I did find interesting was that he mentions the hero's journey. I'm surprised. Like I would never have taken Kanye West as a Joseph Campbell uh you know uh somebody who just knows who joseph campbell is or has read any of his work so i wanted to um revisit that book actually so we have i've got a copy of joseph campbell the hero with a thousand faces now campbell was instrumental in shaping uh lucas's mind uh during his younger years in terms of how i guess lucas approached story or at least uh, the story of um Luke Skywalker in his, or Luke Starkiller, if you will, whatever stage, you know, when it came down to Star Wars stuff. Um, prior to that, obviously, he, he'd sort of gone into filmmaking kind of as an aside. The guy was, by his own admission, you know, a bit of a, I guess a bit of a boy racer, right? He liked cars, he liked racing. Um, I think he had a really big car crash as well at one point. I'm, I might, I might be misremembering that. Uh, and this is not you know, the George Lucas biography show. This is, uh, yeah, the screening room. Uh, so 
I can't remember, but I mean, you guys can uh, go off and do your own little research on that. But you know, he when he did start making film, um, from what I understand, from the way Lucas talks about it, it was a little reluctantly. It wasn't something that was um, first and foremost uh, in his mind. And when he did start cutting uh, stuff, when he start, did start making films, he was cutting footage together. Like there's that famous. Uh, uh, shot one of his earliest films is basically race car uh, footage. You know, it's like a almost like a montage thing. They're all they're black and white. They're essentially silent films. Although he does use audio, so it's not um, you know it's not silent film in the traditional sense uh, or in the truest sense of what a silent film is. Uh, but it he does have a score, but there's no you know dialogue and things. It, and they're really abstract. You know, they're real pieces of abstract work the kind of stuff that we well that i would have seen or did see during you know my academic years uh which i spent a lot of time in you know uh i did you know after <clears throat> after gcse so high school for us uk people uh then a levels which would be the equivalent of i guess senior high for the americans uh i went on to do a foundation art, art and design course which i was told and it literally this clicked the other day you know, some 20 something years after the fact that I was told that, oh, I needed that. I absolutely needed that in order to get into university to do a, uh, a diploma or a bachelor's degree. Um, and it just occurred to me the other day that actually I didn't need to, because plenty of people that I know have gone straight from a level onto, um, bachelor's degrees, uh, and then, you know, onto masters and so on. I think I was sent off to Foundation Art and Design, which is a one-year course, uh, to get a stronger portfolio. Because actually, I was spending a lot of my time just goofing around and smoking weed. Maybe my uh, maybe my portfolio wasn't as strong as I thought it was. You know, this, this whole idea that if you've got natural talent, that you'll just um, that you'll be able to skate by uh, is also BS. I mean, it's only true to a degree. There will come a point when you will need to put some flipping effort into what you're doing. And actually, ironically, that foundation course was spent stoned as well. So, you know, whatever. But I did that. Then I went on to do uh, H&D, which is a higher national diploma, two-year um, degree basically in Maidstone. And then I went off uh, to the US to do my uh, bachelor's. as another two and a half years. And then uh, after that, it was a you know year of... Um, or well, the Yanks called grad school, so uh, CMA. So during that time, you know, so you see a lot of experimental stuff. Not not film necessarily, but you are exposed to that to a degree. So I get, you know, when I see uh, Lucas's early stuff, you get it. You know, it makes sense to me. Um, the kind of thing he's he it's a, it's basically you're trying to find your voice, right? As a, as a creative, as an artist, you're trying to find your voice, um, which is what he was doing. And then, you know, the, and that it just so happened that that evolved and he did, um, you know, he did, he did a studio picture, American Graffiti. He did THX, which was his, I think, end of year, end of degree um, project, which then got turned into a feature by, by a studio. I, I can't remember who. But anyway, so, the, the, you know, there's an evolution there um, until he was part of that system, actually, that he wasn't really that fond of. So the hero, yeah, so anyway, so Wes talks about the hero's journey and it started triggering all these memories of um, uh, the book, uh, the 
obviously the book, uh, and George Lucas and his earlier work and how he kind of got to where he is with Star, where he was, sorry, rather, uh, with Star Wars in the mid to late 70s. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to revisit this book. Well, I'm going to, well, first, what I'll do before I look at this book is waffle on for like 15 minutes about nonsensical stuff, uh, let you guys digest that. And then I think I'm going to read a bit of this book to people. Uh, and it's and it is very impromptu. I've kind of opened the page uh, randomly and found that it was just in a, literally in the middle of something that would not make any sense because there's zero context. So I flicked back a couple of pages, um, and actually it looks like that's I got up to page. So no, sorry. So the bookmark was at page eighty-six, and it's Artie's old um, business card. So I guess this is how far she got into it. But I flipped back to page 77. So just in case you're interested and want to read along with me. And obviously, I'm not going to read the whole freaking book to you because I'm sure I'm be violating all sorts of copyright issues and all kinds of stuff. But I've basically, I want to read a little excerpt and let's just see where it goes. Um, you know, it's starting at a, a, an interesting point and a really interesting point and definable point in the original Star Wars film, uh, In A New Hope, yeah, episode four, uh, or just Star Wars if you're one of those, you know, purists. Um, so yeah, I'm going to read this thing. I am reading from uh, the Paladin edition. Which year was this? This book's pretty old and battered. Um, let's see. Just flicking through here. So this was published in 1988 by Paladin Books so hence the page 77 but um if you've got like one of the earlier versions in fact if you've got the first edition uh the US printing by Princeton University which i i guess what is that where Campbell was a professor because he was a professor um i guess he was uh anyway so that first edition 1949 it's pretty cool and the copyright back then was owned by or is perhaps still owned by i don't know uh bollingen foundation incorporated 1949 interesting anyway so uh, the the version i'm reading here the edition rather is um 1988 by paladin um oh grafton street oh see we just we just recently moved out of london recently although our south london house is still there um yeah God, whenever I see a London address, I just think, oh, my heart aches. Especially with lockdown, we can't go anywhere. But anyway, um, and what's interesting is this book is dedicated by Campbell to his father and mother. Um, anyway, so here we go. So it's page 77 in this Paladin edition, but the chapter is chapter 4. Yeah, and it's titled The Crossing of the First Threshold. Is it chapter four? Are there chapter headings here? Hang on a second. That might be a sub thing. That's a refusal of the call is chapter two. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, chapter four, The Crossing of the First Threshold. So now, just by that title alone, I can tell you that in the original Star Wars film, this is the moment um, when essentially uh, Luke has accepted Obi-Wan's um, call to train as a Jedi Knight like his father and to come with him to Alderaan. Now, 
does he do that because of his own uh, uh, volition? Uh, not not really, actually, because there's a catalyst there. He goes back to, um, I guess, seemingly save his aunt and uncle from the stormtroopers that have just sort of uh, wiped out all those Jawas and whatnot, looking for the droids. And so he rushes off. He goes, "Oh my God! They would that would have if they trace the Jawa. If they tra- uh, sorry, trace the droids uh, to these Jawas, then that would mean." That they could be led, oh god, I can't remember the line exactly, but that will lead him to home, and then he jumps into his uh, speeder, and uh, Obi-Wan says, Luke, wait, it's too dangerous, yada yada, and he shoots off, and you get that really powerful moment, and um, uh, you've got... uh, You know, in the speeder, he approaches the Lars homestead, um, Dsere, the the piece of the Gregorian chant is playing. The well, it's not quite like that, but that those are the basic notes of Dsere. Um, that's playing to signify the doom. Uh, not even the impending doom, but it, it's just doom. That is doom. And uh, and he sees his aunt and uncle. Uh, you know, roasted, basically cooked. Fried. Their skull skeletons are there. So bizarre. Like I, I still wonder to this day what the smeg did those stormtroopers do to those guys? Like, did they, were they incinerator troopers or whatever they're called? The uh, you know, like we see in um, the Force Awakens. Uh, did they just like torch them? But then why is there no fire? The fire's gone out. They're just smoldering. Oh, actually, it's heavy, heavy uh, visuals. Anyway, so you know, he's kind of um, that is the catalyst. That's the point where he's like, oh, god damn it. My aunt and uncle are dead. My house is fucked. Pardon my French. Um, my house is, you know, gone. My my album, my vinyl collection is probably is melted. What am I going to do now? I can't even listen to cool music anymore or, you know, read my comic books. It's all gone. The Empire's destroyed it. So he goes back to Obi-Wan and he's like, yeah, no, uh, you know what? There's nothing left for me here. I'm going to come with you. I want to become a Jedi Knight like my father. Um, hopefully not entirely like his father. I mean, he's obviously not seen the prequels yet, but uh, yeah. So he goes off, and that essentially, um, you know, the, the, then it cuts away to that. There's that called swipe to show to signify the passing of time, and they're stood on that cliff, and they're overlooking, um, uh, Moss Eisley spaceport. Uh, and that's when Obi Wan tells him rather famously that you'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Mm. So that's that sort of crossing of the first threshold. Uh, I, mean, I don't know how many thresholds there are, but that's the moment. So in the book, this is how it goes. The crossing of the first threshold. With the personifications of his destiny to guide and aid him, the hero goes forward in his adventure until he comes to the threshold guardian. At the entrance to the zone of magnified power, such custodians bound the world in the four directions, also up and down, standing for the limits of the hero's present sphere or life horizon. Beyond them is darkness, the unknown, and danger. Just as beyond the parental watch is danger to the infant, and beyond the protection of his society, danger to the member of the tribe. The usual person is more than content. He is even proud to remain within the indicated bounds, and popular belief gives him every reason to fear so much as the first step into the unexplored. Which is uh, the cantina, actually. I suppose. Maybe. 
Thus, the sailors of the bold vessels of Columbus, breaking the horizon of the medieval mind, sailing, as they thought, into the boundless ocean of immortal being that surrounds the cosmos, like an endless mythological serpent biting its tail. Uh, there's a footnote there. I'm just going to break for that footnote. Footnote number 37. Compare the serpent of the dream. Supra, page 62. Okay, that was pointless. Uh, get the book and go to that and get stuck in. Anyway, let's come back to this. Uh, so where was I? Like an endless mythological serpent biting its tail. Had to be cozened. Cozened? What is that word? Cozened? As in cozy? Yeah, okay. Had to be cozened and urged on like children. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. Cozy. Because of their fear of the fabled leviathans, mermaids, dragon kings, and other monsters of the deep. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just gives you a little uh, idea. It's about sort of taking that brave step, uh, that first step. I won't read on uh, too much more. I sort of really do urge you, if you've got an interest in this, or uh, to go get the book. Uh, you'll probably be able to pick it up for pennies, to be honest with you. Um, uh, you know, wherever. Um, and if you have got the book, go back to it and have a have a little uh, have a little read. Um, it's just really fascinating uh, stuff, and I, yeah, so like I just found it really interesting that actually Kanye West, somebody who I don't really, I'm not really uh, interested in. Um, I'm not exactly a fan. He's done some cool music. I not you know the narcissism really gets to me and puts me off a little bit you know where he sort of likens himself to people like lucas and uh, steve jobs he does this in the um in the rogan uh podcast he, it's yeah it's, it's really quite interesting i mean you should probably just go listen to it as well i mean it's three hours but much of that stuff is sort of spoken about in that first um 30 minutes to an hour i think um it's very very uh yeah god can i find another word that isn't interesting can i find a synonym for that i mean i just thought it was bizarre that he would start quoting well he didn't quote joseph campbell but he referred to it um and he's like you know and referenced star wars so that you know crossing of that first threshold it's just a fascinating uh thing that applies i think to every single one of us um even if you think that it doesn't uh if you trace your life back i am you know, 100% sure you will find a moment where you had to sort of uh, rise to the challenge, as it were. And I'm not just talking about, you know, waking up on a Monday morning and going to the day job, like, oh, God, I've got to go to work again, case of the Mondays. Um, yeah, a little office space uh, reference there for you. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, perhaps um, taking that plunge with uh, i don't know uh going out into the well going out into the big bad world you know uh taking that plunge with a job um buying your own property or maybe not even buying just you know saying i'm gonna move out of home and i'm gonna set up uh my own uh shop in this house in this flat or whatever i'm gonna you know whether you're renting or buying doesn't matter i'm gonna live here on my own without the the cozy comforts of home or what you know as home, and you're going to redefine what a home means. Um, maybe it means taking the plunge with a new job that you weren't perhaps entirely sure of. Uh, there are so many, you know, I'm, I'm sure you can find that moment. I, I seem to, I think if I go back, I would probably find a new moment each time I go back. Uh, 
Yeah, it's just a really, uh, it's a great read. It's an interesting thought. Um, yeah, uh, let's see what the future holds. Take the plunge. And go buy Joseph Campbell's book and read it. And uh, go watch Star Wars again. Um, and uh, see if you can, you know, pinpoint those moments. Because uh, even the, the prequel trilogy, uh, 1 to 3, you know, has it. Uh, actually, yeah, let, okay, before I leave you, um, let's point out that moment in the same way that Luke had to heed the call, uh, so did Anakin. But again, uh, less so in the same way that Luke did. Luke kind of, I always felt like, well, he's got nothing better to do. With um, with Anakin, though, it, it's actually more fitting with this in that he, he does it in order to try and, uh, you could say selfish reasons, right, to better his life to become a Jedi so that he can then come back and save his mother. But uh, you see that moment um, quite late on in episode one, The Phantom Menace, uh, and it's I still think it's a beautiful and really powerful moment, really accentuated by, uh, you know, I suppose you, you could argue that perhaps the performances aren't up to everybody's um, liking or whatever. Uh, I thought they were fine. You know, um, you know, I thought Panilla, August, and Jake Lloyd did the the you know a great job in that scene, uh, but it's really um, accentuated by. Williams is uh, unbelievable score, you know, um, and when that kicks in, you really feel it. I know I did in the cinema every time I, every time I saw it, or seven odd times that I saw that film in the cinema, um, and I still feel it to this day. You know, you, this little ten-year-old boy is is off, and more so than that, um, is that the mother is letting her child go essentially with a stranger. So actually, when you frame it that way, it's kind of odd. But um, I mean, they've had a bit of time together, so maybe. She just trusts him uh, and trusts that Qui-Gon won't, you know, sell him off into some other kind of weird child slave labor thing. Um, yeah, OK, best not to think too much about that stuff. But uh, it's yeah, it's a great it's a great little moment, um, a really powerful. Actually, I say little moment. It's not. It's, it's pivotal. It's massive, um, pivotal to the entire saga, really. But and really hard hitting because it is a parent letting go of their child, and if you are a parent yourself, you'll understand that that is. I don't know, man. For me, I mean, I my son is only three and a half, so you know, it, it's I I haven't had to deal with seeing him off to say university or you know seeing him leave the homestead as it were. So I can't necessarily relate on that uh, aspect, but. Yeah, it's a powerful moment. Um, those three films also sit quite well with um, Campbell. Do the Disney films? Maybe. I mean, nothing's jumping out uh, instantaneously. I mean, where can we... So Ray, she is our protagonist in the sequel trilogy. Does she see the call? She kind of just... Um, no, she does, actually. Sorry, beg your pardon. Of course she does. Uh, aside from the fact that Force Awakens is somewhat of a uh, retread in some aspects of A New Hope. Um, To my mind, it definitely falls under the category of soft reboot. But she has that same moment too, because she, when she's on the Falcon, I mean, they've escaped, partly because they had no choice. So that was quite nicely done, actually. They they had no choice but to escape uh, Jakku in the same, uh, or not not quite in the same way as Luke. I mean, he left because of something. and his reasons were that he's got nothing left there. Uh, she left because Ray left uh, because, well, they were being shot at by a couple of Tie Fighters. Um, 
Anakin left through, uh, I guess, selfish love, not unconditional love, but selfish love. Um, but Ray does have that moment, doesn't she, on the uh, Falcon when uh, she tells Han that she needs to go back and she's got to go wait for her family, uh, which I always found interesting because she never says parents. You know, the whole parent thing, who are Ray's parents, who are Ray's parents? I felt like that was kind of just lumped onto the film, the shoulders of the filmmakers uh, by the fans and the media and outside people. She, I, I'm pretty sure she never once says parents in that film. She says, my family, I'm waiting for my family. So with that prospect, I mean, let's forget that eight and nine have happened at this stage. You know, if you just think of it in that moment and you hear her say, I'm waiting for my family. I, I love that idea that the family can be... Um, Anybody, really. It could have been anyone, you know, because now looking back, basically she's found her new family in Han Solo, Chewbacca, Finn, uh, BB-8. Uh, who else was there in that? No, that's it. Uh, in, in, in that, you know, in those scenes, in, that, in those moments. Um, that is her family. Um, and that goes back to what I was saying about blood and water. So there you go. Uh, water, in this moment at least, is thicker than blood. Uh, until you get to Rise of Skywalker when blood gets thick again, uh, but not enough to cause a heart attack, not enough to wipe out the Emperor, uh, and then it thins out again. It, it turns back into water at the end when she uh, nicks the Skywalker name, even though she's a Palpatine, thus rendering the Palpatines the winners. Anyway, so on that really positive note, uh, yeah, I'm going to just read one last random uh, random thingy-mabob from the book. Um, this also says chapter 2, but it's on page 261, so clearly I got uh, chapter headings completely freaking wrong. Um, this is, uh, let's see, the Universal Round. I've not actually got this far into the book, um, but there's some... Oh, God, no. Okay, okay, I'm going to go back. I'll read that random bit in a minute, but I'm going to just come back to this, uh, a few pages back to page 241. Uh, and it looks like it's in the chapter Freedom to Live. I mean, that's the heading at the top. Uh, let's see. I'm going to read this thing completely out of context. And uh, we can both sit here and be suitably confused by what I'm about to read. Primary Chief Bard am I to Elfin. And my original country is a region of the summer stars. Idno and Hainin called me Murdin. At length, every king will call me Taliesin. Gosh, I'm, I hope I'm getting these pronunciations right. I'm pretty sure I'm not. Uh, I don't know who this dude is, man. Who's Taliesin? This sounds like Lord of the Rings type stuff. It's pretty cool. I like it. I was with my lord in the highest sphere. And that's a capital lord, so we are talking about God here. On the fall of Lucifer into the depth of hell. Not depths. Why is it not pluralized? Anyway, I have, <laughs> oh God, I read this next thing as I have a boner, but it's not. <laughs> I have borne a banner before Alexander. Oh, Alexander the Great? Hmm. I know the names of the stars from north to south. I have been on the galaxy at the throne of the distributor. I was in Canaan when Absalom was slain. Oh, cool. Canaan? Canaan? I conveyed the divine spirit to the level of the Vale of Hebron. I was in the court of Don before the birth of Gwydion. 
I was instructed to Eli and Enoch. Yeah, Eli and Enoch. Uh, so is this all Old Testament stuff? Jeez, my brain. It's really failing me. And I've studied all this shit. Anyway, I've been winged by the genius of the splendid Crozier. I've been... Oh, God, this is a word. Loquacious. Prior to being gifted with speech. I was at the place of the crucifixion of the merciful Son of God. Oh, poor Jesus. I should probably release this during uh, Easter. I've been three periods in the prison of Arianrod. I have been the chief director of the work of the Tower of Nimrod. <laughs> we used to use Nimrod as like a derogatory term. Somebody was stupid or say something stupid. Go, You're such a Nimrod. I don't even know where I learned that word. Anyway, I am a wonder whose origin is not known. I have been in Asia with Noah in the Ark. I have seen the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Whoa, I wish I could go there. Uh, check out Year One, by the way. Um, one of Harold Ramis's uh, last films, I believe. Uh, Wicked. So underrated. I have been in India when Roma was built. I am now come here to the remnant of Troy. I have been with my lord in the manger of the ass. <laughs> oh my god, I need to grow up. I strengthened Moses through the water of Jordan. I have been in the firmament with Mary Magdalene. Oh, Da Vinci Code. That's where she got it. Oh, wow. Apparently. Um, anyway, whatever. I have obtained the muse from the cauldron of Caridwen. I have been bard of the harp of Chleon of Lochlin. Chleon. That's two L's, right? So that's pretty Welsh. Chleon. Chleon of Lochlin. I have been on the white hill in the court of Snivellin. Knevelin. I don't know. C-Y-N-V-E-L-Y-N. Okay, that's that's the word. For a day and a year in stocks and fetters, I've suffered hunger for the son of the virgin. I've been fostered in the land of the deity. I've been teacher to all intelligences. I am able to instruct the whole universe. I shall be until the day of doom on the face of the earth. Judgment day. And it is not known whether my body is flesh or fish. Right. I mean, surely you would know if your body is flesh or fish. I mean, fish have flesh. You know, it's a body. Um, I don't really get that. But okay, whatever. So uh, that was pretty, pretty fucking strange. Um, so whatevs. Uh, we need, I guess we do need some context, so forget that. I'm not even going to cut it out of the podcast. I'm just going to keep it in there just to mess people up. But uh, so then uh, jumping ahead, some more out of context stuff. I'm going to leave you with these words. The Universal Round on page 261 of Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces. As the consciousness of the individual rests on a sea of night into which it descends in slumber and out of which it mysteriously wakes, so, in the imagery of myth, the universe is precipitated out of and reposes upon a timelessness back into which it again dissolves. And as the mental and physical health of the individual depends on an orderly flow of vital forces into the field of waking day from the unconscious dark, so again in myth, the continuance of the cosmic order is assured only by a controlled flow of power from the source. Is that source the force? I do not know. 
The god. Oh, by the way, that bit wasn't. It's not in the book. The gods are symbolic personifications of the laws governing his flow. The gods, and this is all lowercase g, by the way, so we could be talking about Hinduism or whatever, any of the other bajillion uh, religions out there. The gods come into existence with the dawn of the world and dissolve with the twilight. They are not eternal in the sense that the night is eternal. Only from the shorter span of human existence does the sound of a cosmogonic eon seem to endure. The cosmogonic cycle is normally represented as repeating itself, world without end. During each great round, lesser disillusions, disillusions, oh for fuck's sake, are commonly included, as the cycle of sleep and waking revolves throughout a lifetime. According to an Aztec version, each of the four elements, water, earth, air, fire, with our powers combined, we are Captain Planet. Terminates a period of the world. The eon of the waters ended in deluge. That of the earth with an earthquake. That of air with a wind. And the present eon will be destroyed by flame. Ah, shit. Are they talking like they, this is Judgment Day, yeah? So it's going to be a nuclear... It is going to be nuclear. It's nuclear. Nuclear fallout. So I guess uh, Terminator 2... Uh, got it right. Hmm. And then Siri and Alexa, I guess, will take over. Anyway, so I'm not going to read any more of this because there is a word that I've just spotted down here. I mean, I'm butchering this book enough as it is. There is a word called Rishya Banata. Oh, no, I got it. Rishya Banata. That's very Indian. Going all the way, way back. Oh, yeah, look, he's talking about Krishna. Hindu. Okay, no, I am going to read. Okay, picking it up at the top of 262. According to the Stoic doctrine of the cyclic conflagration, conflagration, oh, oh God. According to the Stoic doctrine of the cyclic conflagration, all souls are resolved into the world, soul, or primal fire. When this universal dissolution is concluded, the formation of a new universe begins. Cicero's renovatio, and all things repeat themselves. Every divinity, every person, playing again his former part. Seneca gave a description of this destruction in his De Consolazione ad Marcium. Oh man, I'm really sorry to all of my Latin-speaking friends and uh, Italians, the world, well, everybody, actually. I'm just really sorry to all of you. Anyway, uh, so this uh, Seneca gave a description of this destruction in his De Consolazione ad marciam and appears to have looked forward to uh, livening, uh, living sorry, uh, living again in the cycle to come there is a footnote there uh, that refers you back to Hastings Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics oh man this is some heavy stuff I feel like I'm back at school only I can goof around a bit a magnificent vision of the cosmogonic round is presented in the mythology of the Jains oh interesting interesting we have Jains in our family Maybe I've got something to talk to them about over Christmas. Haha. -ha. The most recent prophet and savior of this very ancient Indian sect was Mahavira, a contemporary of the Buddha. His parents were already followers of a much earlier Jaina savior prophet, Parshvanatha, who is represented with snakes springing from his shoulders and is reputed to have flourished 872 to 772 BC, centuries before Parshvanatha. There lived and died the Jaina savior Naminatha declared to have been a cousin of the beloved Hindu incarnation, Krishna. 
Interesting. Okay, so I am going to stop there um, because this is getting pretty heavy and I'm pretty sure most of you lot have switched off already. If you haven't, uh, good for you. Um, so yeah, again, I am going to leave you with the uh, words. Go get a copy of Joseph Campbell, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Go listen to Joe Rogan's uh, podcast. Not that he needs my plug at all, but um, listen to that Kanye West episode um, and tell me what you think. Is it actually uh, interesting? That, well, it is interesting, uh, but does what West say make sense to you? Certainly the Star Wars stuff uh, does. Um, I just still can't forgive him for getting that line from Revenge of the Sith wrong. But anyway, um, go, uh, go check it out. Go read the book. Go buy the book, um, preferably from a local independent bookstore if any of those poor buggers are still open um and yeah a peace out <laughs>